Welcome to the HR Chat Podcast, bringing the best of the HR and talent communities to you. Most of us yearn for more meaningful work. Sometimes we just need the right mindset and tools to make that leap. In this HR Chat, we're going to talk about making smarter decisions and achieving high performance. This episode has a kick and a punch because you're going to hear how to start learning a veritable conversational martial art. And I'm joined today by the awesome, wonderful, fantastic Craig Weber, author of the best-selling book, Conversational Capacity, The Secret to Building Successful Teams That Perform When the Pressure Is on and the sequel influence in action how to build your conversational capacity do meaningful work and make a powerful difference craig says he's on a mission to help people build more healthy engaged and adaptive organizations and he shares practical skills for putting good ideas to work from running better meetings and making smarter decisions to facilitating more productive change and crafting more effective strategies hey craig it's my Delight and pleasure, sir, to welcome you to the HR Chat Pod today. Well, thank you very much, Bill, for inviting me. I really appreciate the opportunity to uh, chat with you today. So, Craig, beyond my wee introduction there, why don't you take a minute and introduce yourself to our listeners? Yeah, you did a very generous job there. So I'm an author and a consultant. And uh, as you mentioned, uh, I work with people to build healthier, more adaptive, more engaged organizations. And I do that by helping people treat dialogue as a discipline. And so there's this um, discipline I refer to as conversational capacity, which you mentioned in the titles of both my books. And it's really a set of skills for helping people have much more balanced, much more constructive, much healthier conversations about the issues that really matter. We'll be right back to this interview after this quick message from Tyler Muse and his team over at Lingo Live. I'm Tyler Muse, and this is Groundwork, a show about chief people officers from the world's fastest growing companies. It's a tough job, and high growth companies are not for the faint of heart. We get to know them on a human level, how they became the leaders they are today, how they've navigated their toughest challenges, and how they envision the future of work. Groundwork, the new show from Lingo Live. Find us online at groundwork.show. Okay, wonderful. Thank you very much. Now we're going to get into the detail shortly, but to start with, and maybe in about 60 seconds or less, let's challenge you right from the beginning, shall we? And then and then later on, you're going to have lots of wiggle room to give more expansive answers. But for this one, in 60 seconds or less, Craig, what, what does inspiring constructive change, and probably in the context here we're talking about uh, within a company's leadership team, I expect, uh, what, what, is, what does that term, inspiring constructive change, mean to you? Yeah. So how do you help people, you know, make a big difference? All right. Pe- few people get up in the morning and get really excited about perpetuating the mediocrity. They want to make a difference. They want to feel they're making constructive change. They want to feel their, their activity day to day matters. So how do you help people rise to the occasion and have more influence, help ideas, you know, get the traction they deserve, uh, foster constructive change in your organizations, run better meetings, you know, manage change in a healthier way, give feedback that's more helpful and constructive. And so what's a baseline? set of competencies that can help people do that. 
Okay, thank you very much. Let's talk a bit about uh, your book, Conversational Capacity. Your, your, your methods, and here's a quote, uh, have been used to bolster the performance of executive groups and, fi- and flight crews, as well as surgical units and CDC emergency response teams. Wowza. Can you give our listeners an overview of how you help leaders and highly skilled professionals to perform at top levels? And maybe as part of that, you can share some of your philosophy and the business practices that you promote. Sure, I'd be happy to, Bill. So we'll go back to your martial art observation. I do describe conversational capacity as a conversational martial art. And there's always a risk in framing it that way where someone might think, well, this sounds useful. I can use it against my team. But in this conversational martial art, our opponents never other people. It's not the issue we are trying to address. It is not even the context in which the conversation is unfolding. All those factors merely provide the mat. In this conversational martial art, our opponents are ego. And so we could define conversational capacity in one way as the ability as an individual or a team to stay purpose-driven rather than ego-driven under pressure. And I think if we want to perform well under pressure, that's a really important thing. We can't let our ego and our defensive emotional reactions get in the way of our effectiveness. And so you can define conversational capacity as that ability to stay purpose-driven. Um, Another way I talk about it is it's the ability, and again, this is of an individual or a team, as the ability to have constructive, learning-focused dialogue about difficult subjects in challenging circumstances and across tough boundaries. And so you can think about a management team, for example, high conversational capacity. Your team can put its most difficult, painful, divisive issue on the table in a meeting and do really good work around it. Whereas low conversational capacity and a minor difference of opinion will derail performance. And so in this sense, sort of a foundational competence um, that breathes life into everything from running meetings, making decisions, managing change, implementing strategy and giving feedback. But it's not something that tends to be on our management dashboards. And so I'm working to change that. Okay, thanks, Craig. And what are some of some of the approaches that you've seen that lead to more productive meetings then? Can you can you can you share any any case studies of folks that you've worked with or companies that, that you've seen do an extraordinary job of of having those conversations and and um, leading very structured meetings that get results? Yeah. So one place that conversational capacity is particularly important is in running meetings. And we talk about this a lot in my workshops and presentations, because not only is it a great place to apply the skills, it's a great place to practice the skills. And so one of the things I talk about is that if conversational capacity is a conversational martial art, the workplace is your dojo and meetings are a great practice space. And so there are a number of things I really work with clients to get clear about when we're in our meetings. And one is what is the purpose of the meeting? It's hard to design a really good meeting if you're not clear on the purpose. What are we trying to accomplish? Is it just to share information? Is it to wrestle with tough decisions? Is it a brainstorming session where we're trying to generate some new and creative and alternative ideas? So what's the purpose of the meeting? And then you need to ask certain questions like, well, then who needs to be in the room? Or a question I'll often ask business leaders is, whose time do you not need, do, not, do you not need to be wasting? Who doesn't need to be in the meeting? And so who needs to be there and who does? How clear and how crisp and how shared is your decision-making approach? Are people aware when a decision's getting made, who's making it, how much time you're going to spend on the decision, and what information they need to bring to the table to help the decision-maker make it? So decision-making protocols are a really key part of it. Um, So there's a number of factors you want to get uh, right. And I think in your teams, in your organizations, you can raise these questions. What's our purpose? How clear is our decision-making? Who needs to be in the room? 
and use it as a chance to practice your conversational capacity. So you're actually solving two problems at once. You're actually dialing in your meetings and making them more effective. And at the same time, you're using the conversations required to do so as practice for building your ability to stay in that constructive learning focused state. Okay, just to follow up on that one, Craig, I'm, I'm, I'm interested to, to hear who should decide who should be in the room for, the, for that meeting and, and what information they, they should use to, to, um, to, to make those decisions. You know, so for example, um, most companies today have, have constant feedback, you know, a, a continuous feedback with their employees and, and HR folk are, uh, have got their finger on the pulse and, and they're, they're frequently doing pulse surveys um, and, and that's making them more informed and therefore there's a much stronger case for for senior HR leaders to be in in uh, in, in certain meetings and and to be to be to have a place on on the table so to speak uh, with with the board. Um, where where does one start in terms of making sure that you've got the right people in the room to have constructive and productive conversations? Well, I think again, where you would start is with purpose. You know, it's hard to determine who needs to be in the room if you're not clear what you're trying to accomplish in the meeting. So that's kind of the first place to start. Secondly, I would have a conversation about this. So I don't, I think a team sometimes can be the best decision-making choice about who needs to be involved. So the manager, for instance, might say, look, you know, given the purpose of this meeting, I think these people should be involved on a regular basis and list them out. And here's why. Here's why I think this is the core group for this meeting. Push back on me here. Does anyone have a different view? Is there someone on the list you don't think should be involved? Or is there someone not on the list you think should be? And so you could use that as a way to kickstart a conversation to, you know, help your team help you dial in the participant list. From running better meetings and making smarter decisions to facilitating more productive change and crafting more effective strategy, your approach is in over a dozen U.S. states, even helping Democrats and Republican legislators work together. My goodness me, does that happen these days uh, more effectively as they craft public policy? You know, gone are the days of pork barrel politics and things seem so polarized these days when it comes to U.S. Politics. I mean, I'm, I'm a Brit and I'm a Canadian, so that's just my outside perspective. But to to to, to hear that that um, your ideas and your approaches are, are helping to bring Dems and Republicans together and 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 to work on uh, legislation together, that that's that's pretty inspiring stuff. Can you can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, that's been a really. Um satisfying part of my work. So I'll be out in November working in one of the southern states, helping a, a group of legislators work together more effectively. So I've been doing work, as you said, in a number of programs, everything from Georgia State University, uh, the Colorado Health Institute in Colorado's had me come out and do work with the Colorado State Legislature. So there's a number of programs in the U.S. And the idea is how do we help legislators who are in a very difficult job uh, have more balanced, constructive dialogue when they're crafting policy? And so one of the key ideas in conversational capacity, if you want to learn, if you want to think more clearly, if you want to make the smartest choices possible, there's this idea in my work of leaning into difference. So you're actually seeking out people who see the world differently, not to agree with them. That's not the goal, but to learn with them. And so if I have a finance background in a business meeting, I might lean into the marketing person or human resources. If I have a sales background, I might lean into the engineering team or operations because I'm trying to think more clearly about the issue we're wrestling with. And often it's someone who sees the issue through a very different lens, who's most likely to spark the aha moment. Oh yeah, great point. I never thought of it that way. And so what we've been doing is suggesting to legislators is what if your political differences, and they're strong and they're deeply held, but what if you treated those political differences 
as an opportunity to learn from each other in the pursuit of making smart policy choices instead of as some obstacle you've got to get across. What if that, if you want to make smart policy decisions, what if that legislator across the aisle who sees the uh, issue through a very different political lens is actually an ally in helping you think more clearly about the issue? And routinely, we have legislators who say, I'll be honest, I've never thought of it that way. And so the idea is, how do you not get them to agree with each other, not to get them to, uh, you know, all jumping down and give hugs and be kumbaya, but to actually have more constructive, balanced conversations about the issues that matter with a clear focus on learning and making smart policy choices in the driver's seat. And what's great about it in some of these programs is we actually have uh, legislators who come back repeatedly for more practice. They find so much value in this ability. They're actually coming back because they want to you know, stretch their muscles and practice a bit more and get better and better at doing this. So there's some hope. And we're combining in some of these programs, not just conversational capacity, but some systems thinking work, right? Get them using systems models, stock flow diagrams, trend over time graphs. So they're actually working together to build a model of the problem they're trying to solve and where those high leverage choices are at. So I've been doing work with a gentleman named Chris Soderquist, uh, FindingHighLeverage.com, and his work around systems thinking, or what he calls SysQ, systemic intelligence, really fits nicely with the conversational capacity work. So those are some of the tools we've been helping uh, legislators use to work together more effectively. Still a lot of work to do. You know, American politics is a bit of a uh, nightmare right now, but there's some really interesting work going on and some really good people out there trying to make a difference. Follow-up question to that, Craig. Um, so you've got you've got a bunch of people in a room, okay? We'll, we'll move away from uh, from the politicians because this is an HR show. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll use we'll use corporate examples again. Uh, you mentioned uh, an example of a finance person and a marketing person. So you've got a finance person, you've got a marketing person, you've got an HR person, you've got somebody maybe uh, from the operations department, uh, maybe a couple of others. How destructive would would it be, or could it be to to open dialogue and, and finding solutions collectively when you've got just one person in that room who's not buying into different communication strategies. Yeah, what's great about this discipline is it isn't dependent on everyone in the room knowing these skills. So one person, in fact, with high conversational capacity can have a demonstrable effect on the quality of a meeting or the way a decision gets made. Uh, just provides a little more work. And so if you do have a team that is really high with uh, their ability to stay you know, in this balanced state, um, but one person on the team maybe is having a bad day or maybe they're uh, just not, like you said, on board. The rest of the team can actually compensate for that. Won't be perfect, but the, they're not letting this individual whose behavior is perhaps less than fully productive block their ability to stay in a, this, this, this useful place. And so I talk about this place in a conversation called the sweet spot. And the sweet spot's that place in your meeting where two things are in balance. On the one hand, it's candor. If you're in a team with high conversational capacity, you are not wondering what teammates are thinking about the issue because the candor is extremely high. But unhinged candor is not always a good thing. So in the sweet spot, it's balanced with lots of curiosity. People are open-minded. They're inquisitive. They're intellectually humble. They're eager to learn. That's where the good work gets done. And sometimes if someone's worked up about an issue and they get extremely candid, you know, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. I can't believe you people are thinking of doing this. That could throw some teams way out of the sweet spot. People start shutting down or arguing back. But imagine if someone has the presence of mind to actually get curious. Look, you're obviously having a strong reaction to this decision. Take a couple of minutes and help us see where you're coming from. Why are you feeling so strongly about this? Where are we getting it wrong? And so you could actually help someone slow down, get more of their ideas on the table, help them participate in a more constructive way. 
because you're responding to them in a way in a counterintuitive fashion. You're not shutting down. You're not arguing back. You're getting curious and leaning in, but you're also helping them get their view on the table in a clear um, and more useful way. Does that answer the question? It does. It does. I've got another follow up for you, though, Craig, because I am I'm intrigued here. Um, I interview a lot of people and um, they, they uh, many of them talk about the importance of uh, being very selective with the language that one uses. So the, 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 the overall company culture is is seen as and uh, practices as uh, an, an equitable environment, a, a place which embraces the principles of diversity, equity and, and inclusion. Um, you, from what I'm hearing from you, you're, you're saying, um, got to be candid, Bill. You, you've got to say it as it is. It's important if, if you want to be productive, you, you need to spell it out. So, is is, is candor um, more important than maybe respect? Is not the right word, but um, being being conscious of, of of people's feelings, for want of a better way of putting it. Well, I don't think those are opposite. I think you can be very candid and still be conscious and respectful of people's think uh, feelings. Uh, so those aren't opposite things. So the question becomes, how can I be candid? How can I be direct? How can I be honest and straightforward in a way that actually encourages other people to do the same, especially when they don't see things the same way I do? That's what you're really trying to strike here. And so, yes, I'll be honest. I'll be uh, very forthright. But I'm also holding my views more as a hypothesis, less of a truth. I want to check my view with you. Maybe I'm missing something. Maybe you have some evidence I don't have and it would change my thinking. Or maybe you see me making an erroneous assumption. And so when learning's in the driver's seat, we're holding our views more differently. So we're actually putting our views on the table in a candid way because we're curious. So it's not just candor and curiosity. I'm putting my view on the table and explaining it so I can check it with you to see maybe I'm missing something. Maybe I'm wrong here. Maybe there's a better way to look at this than the one I'm holding. I think that's where it gets really useful. So we can be candid in a very respectful way. And we're treating our views hypothetically. We're not coming in with our view as a billy club trying to you know, get people to uh, agree with us and see things our way. We're actually using the views of other people to help us sharpen, clarify, and even change our thinking. I love the observation, you know, if you haven't changed your mind lately, how do you know it's still working? And I think in conversational capacity, we're really working hard to change and improve our thinking on a regular basis. That's the goal in a conversation. And when I reach out to you to help you help me clarify my thinking, there's a certain amount of, first off, intellectual humility in that. I'm making my view vulnerable to you. But there's a certain amount of respect, too, in asking you to help me sharpen my thinking. Hey, where am I off base here, Bill? Are you seeing something I'm not? Am I getting this wrong in some way I can't see or appreciate? If so, I'd love to hear it. So uh, that's kind of my way of thinking about this whole notion of being candid in a respectful, learning-focused way. When you're talking about meetings between very senior people, though, is there is there sometimes a reluctance to show that vulnerability, to show uh, potential weakness, perhaps to show potential gaps within uh, within their understanding of the business? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, more often than not, right? A lot of ego involved. People uh, feel like they want to look smart. They don't want to look stupid, even more important. Uh, they want to feel like they're on top of their game. So there can be a reluctance to be vulnerable. And you see this in uh, you know, Jim Collins' work. Brene Brown talks about this fairly significantly. And so it's a, there's a big reluctance. So the question I'll often ask is, what's the price you pay if you're not vulnerable? You know, we often don't think about that. Yeah, if I'm vulnerable, it's going to be uncomfortable. I might not look as smart as I want. You know, there's a risk I'll uh, look like I'm a less capable leader. But what's the price if you're not? 
know, if you're making dumb decisions because you're not inviting people's views in there to help you calibrate your thinking in a more constructive way. And so, yeah, there's definitely a reluctance to it. I think, you know, we go to school and we're trained to have the right answer, to have things all figured out. And so I think we bring that with us into the corporate world. And sometimes letting go of that is what's really important. And that's another good example of this whole notion of a conversational martial art. Learning needs to be more important to us than an ego massage. If we're going to stay in that sweet spot, simultaneously candid and curious under pressure, I've got to be able to keep learning in the driver's seat when it counts, or else my base defensive emotional reactions and my ego begin driving my behavior. And that's typically, especially in important circumstances, a recipe for disaster. Now let's talk about the greatest uh, sequel since Rocky Two, shall we? Uh, influence in action, Craig. You, you go deeper, showing how to. I love Rocky, by the way, listeners. Um, side side note. Um, you go deeper, showing how to put the principles in in your book, conversational capacity, into practice in in your sequel, and, and you use a step by step program that includes case studies, sample dialogues, skill building exercises, and powerful conversation techniques. Um, Here's a challenge for you. In about three, maximum four minutes, I'd love for you to briefly run through some of those steps and share how that can lead to higher performance. Oh, that's per perfect. Thank you. And Rocky too. I've never heard, uh, you know, my second book referred that to that way. That's a, that's a new one. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things that has come up uh, since my first book was published quite a few years ago is people say, I love this. How do I get better at it? And so influence and action is an answer to that question at the individual level. If you're a person who wants to build your conversational capacity, influence and action is both a deeper dive into the discipline and, as you mentioned, a bit of a workbook. A lot of practices involved, a lot of case studies. And so there are three domains of practice, and the book is divided into these three domains. There's an awareness component to the discipline, there's a mindset component, and there's a skill set, actual behaviors. And so there's uh, what I'll often do is encourage people to put together a personal plan. What's the work you need to do on the awareness front? What's the work you need to do in the mindset piece? And what's the work you need to do with the behaviors? And so the book really goes into that in detail. And on the awareness front, that's really the emotional part of the discipline. How do I get better at recognizing when my emotional reactions are putting my effectiveness at risk? And so we help people learn to get you know, much more conscious of how they and how others are reacting in the moment. So someone reviewed my first book a few years ago and said conversational capacity is, in essence, operationalized emotional intelligence. I like that. And so, for instance, keeping a trigger journal where you're actually conscious of when your emotional reactions are tripping you up so you're more conscious of them, can manage them in a more clear-headed way, that's a really key part of the discipline and one of the core practices I help people adopt. On the mindset front, it's about how do you keep learning in the driver's seat? So even when you're being triggered emotionally, you're able to stay focused on what matters, learning, thinking more clearly, making smart choices, leaning into difference to spark insight and creative ideas. And then there's the skill set, two candor skills, two curiosity skills. And often if we're you know, um, maybe a little less candid than we need to be, the candor skills are the muscles we need to strengthen. On the other hand, if you got someone who's very sure of themselves and uh, candor is their superpower, to bring more balance to their conversational style, the curiosity behaviors are often what we focus on. And so that's sort of the core discipline. How do you get better at the awareness? How do you do better with this conversational capacity mindset? Keep learning centered when it matters. And then what are the behaviors you, you could adopt and strengthen? So it's easier for you to stay in this balanced state, both candid and curious when it really counts. How is that in terms of time? I'd say it was absolutely marvelous. There we go. Yo, Adrian, we did it. Um, okay, and just finally, 
just finally for today, Craig, how can our listeners connect with you? So, for example, you're kind enough to accept my connection request on LinkedIn. Uh, so how, how can they how can they connect with you? And maybe how can they get a, a copy of uh, of Rocky or Rocky 2? <laughs> oh, thanks. Yeah, Conversational Capacity and Influence in Action, both published by McGraw-Hill, are available on Amazon.com or other places great books are sold. Um, conversational Capacity is uh, in print, it's in digital, and it's in audio. In fact, it was just nominated for a uh, award for uh, best narration for a nonfiction book here uh, recently. And so it's out there. And then Influence in Action is both digital and uh, print, but we're not in audio yet. It's more of a workbook, so it's a little more awkward to put into an audio format. And then conversationalcapacity.com if you want to learn more about the basics. And you can always find me on LinkedIn. I'm constantly posting posting ideas and articles and research around some of the key aspects of the conversational capacity disciplines. So that's always a great place to connect. Perfect. And that just leaves me to say for today, Craig Weber, you superstar. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the HR Chat Show. Bill, thank you again for having me. As always, until next time, happy working. Thank you for listening to the HR Chat Podcast, brought to you by the HR Gazette. 